0: Um, this is for our sermon series on Ruth and basically Aaron sent me a bunch of her thoughts and her kind of like research on Ruth and her vision. And then I tried to put some of that into this painting. So basically Aaron said like Ruth takes place in a time that really sucks. Like it's terrible. Um, there's heartbreak, there's famine, there is, um, death. And so in the background, you can't really see, but later if you want to come see, there's like a little carved into the paint. There's like dead emoji faces (laughs) and broken hearts and bread with crosses through it. Like everything's terrible, basically. Um, And it's supposed to look sort of like a desert because there's barrenness in this story. There's brokenness. Um... But in the midst of that, that's kind of where God shows up in our lives um, and in this book. So I put the two figures to symbolize kind of like Ruth and Naomi, but it also could be Ruth and Boaz, or it also could be us and the Lord. Um, it's supposed to have many different meanings, but the Hebrew word at the top is hesed, and it means loving kindness and uh, faithfulness. And so it's just supposed to be a reminder that in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of what looks hopeless, um, the Lord does come through. And I think that's, like, the message of Ruth. Um, And there's supposed to be sort of, like, some heart shapes and things like that to show that. So, yeah, I just really wanted to show that it's a story of redemption. It's a story of God showing up when you don't think it's possible. So I hope that's an encouragement to you guys.
1: Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. Shocker. We are in a Ruth series. We are in Ruth chapter 2. And we are going to be going through the, the second chapter of Ruth today. We had our series kicked off with Aaron, um, who went through the first five verses. Then last week, Leah uh, walked us through the rest of Ruth chapter 1. And today we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2. Um, to underline something that said a little bit earlier that I think is in... It's really important that we understand what Pentecost means because you can't get this text and why it's good news if you don't get Pentecost. Thank you. I plan on talking about it. Um, This is... If if we're going to boil everything down in Pentecost to like one equation, it looks like this. No Holy Spirit equals no power. No Holy Spirit equals no power. This is incredibly important for understanding why the text that we're going to look at today is good news. It's incredibly important for understanding why Jesus, in the midst of the text that we're going to look at today, continues to be good news, but should also provoke us um, to not live lives that live within our means and our own power. Let's pray together. So, Lord, 2,000 years ago, a group of people were gathered waiting for your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, here we are gathered. And some of us are still waiting for that Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that many of us have been raised from death to life and have that Spirit within us. But, Lord, we want more. Uh, We want to be baptized by your Spirit. We want to receive your Spirit. We want to be filled with your Spirit. We want to be emboldened by your spirit. We want to be healed by your spirit. We want to heal through your spirit. Lord, if there is anything that your spirit has for us, we want it all. And so we surrender to you tonight. And we surrender to the word that you have given us tonight in this text. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the way that I want to line up our text tonight is I want to start with Jesus. Um, there is a there is a thing that um, would constantly happen to Jesus, and if you, if you read Matthew, um, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the stories about Jesus, you'll regularly see these people who walk up to Jesus, and they'll ask him a question. And we're not exactly sure um, all the time, like, what it is that they're thinking with this question. This is one of those times in this particular story where we kind of know what's rumbling around inside the guy's head. There's a guy who comes to Jesus, and he says, Lord who is my neighbor? Lord, who is my neighbor? Um, And and kind of the background of why this is important is that at the end of the day, there are two laws that every other Jewish law hangs on, and it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love God. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so these very smart people are like, all right, well, Um, you're telling me i need to love my neighbor and so the question that they then ask is like well who is my neighbor because the the, the subtle thing that this question is asking is this who don't i have to love like what what the question is trying to get at is like are there ways around loving some people but not loving others so jesus looks at this guy as like that's an interesting question Let me tell you a story. There is a man, and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And while he's on this road, he's seized by a group of robbers and bandits. And the man is stripped naked. Everything he's taken is taken. Everything he has is taken from him. And he's beaten and left aside on the road. And they're just expecting this man to bleed out. Well, there's a priest who is who's supposed to be like the good guy in the story. And he's walking down the road, and he sees this man who is beaten and bloodied and is going to die. And he's thinking to himself, like, one, probably, do I have time for this? Or two, do I have to do something about this? Well, there's nothing really explicit in the law that says that I have to do something about this. So what does the man do? We know the story, right? He walks to the other side of the road, keeps on going, right? Next. The book of We see a Levite, so a man from the holiest of the families in all of, the, of all of Israel. He sees a man who's bleeding out. He's broken. He's on the side of the road. If no one does anything, the man's going to die. He's probably thinking the same thing. Do I have to do something? I've probably got an appointment. What is it that I'm supposed to do? What do I have to do? At the end of the day, the Levite decided, like, I probably don't have to do anything. I might be from a holy family, but here's this man. There's nothing that explicitly says... That I have to deal with this dude. So he walks on the other side of the road, keeps going. There's a man. It is a man that everyone in all of Israel hates more than anyone in the entire world. For them. So think about whoever that might be for you. It's that person walking on down the road. The man sees this guy who every Jew who's hearing Jesus tell the story hates more than anything else. And his heart is moved to compassion. And it says he takes the man, he picks him up, he bandages him, he gets him to an inn, and he pays not just for like what he's, what's already happened, but for like months in advance. And the guy tells the innkeeper, look, if there's more that I need to pay, I'll do it. And then Jesus looks at the man who asked the question and was like, you tell me, which of these men acted like a neighbor? And he's like, the third dude, the Samaritan, the one that we hate more than life itself. And Jesus is like, Cool, now go and do the same. Like the, the fact that we the thing that we have to like really wrap our, our heads around is that many, many times like we are not good at asking the right questions. In fact, there's there's this thing in our mind where we are almost pre programmed to ask the wrong questions. That's why, for instance, the Holy Spirit is pretty important. Because what the scriptures tell us is that when we have the Holy Spirit in us, there's this rewiring that starts to happen, where there's a renewing of our mind. And we used to think and see and understand the world in a certain way, but now we see it in a completely different way. Maybe, just maybe, we would start to ask different questions. Because the the, the thing that we have to shift from is the question of like, um, who do I have to love versus who do I get to love? Who do I have to help versus who do I get to serve? The the thing that we have to confront is sometimes when we read the scriptures, what we're doing is we're trying to tell, we're we're looking for the scriptures to tell us, what is the ceiling of what I have to do? When in fact, what the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to see is this is the floor for what the scriptures are inviting you into. So today, this is what I want to do. I want to talk about why checklist justice just won't work. I want to talk about why chest chest checklist justice... See, I got you laughing already. I want to talk about why checklist justice just won't work. And I want us to think about the questions that Ruth and Boaz are faced with. What they're probably asking themselves and what that might be able to show us today about why Jesus is good news. So, quick review. Um, I'm, there's a lot that has happened in the in the first chapter, and so it, we can boil it down to this: There are two women. There's Naomi, who has a husband and two sons. The husband and the two sons both die. Um, there's a famine that's going on, and there's there are two uh, sister-in-laws who are together. Who one of whom is obviously uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law. And Naomi is telling her sister, her daughter-in-law just leave, like, leave me alone. I'm going to go back to this country. Hopefully things work out for me. But it would be a lot better if you just stayed here, find new men, find your family, go do your thing. I'm going home. And one of them does do that and probably made, if we're going to be honest, the smart choice. But the other one, Ruth is like, nah, like, I'm not going to do that. Like, this is the way that it's going to go down, Naomi. Like, your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. Wherever you go, that is where I am going. Like, just by a rough accounting, not a wise decision. They have lost everything, and there's a famine going on. Uh, As you you talk about, Lauren talked about this painting, and she talked about the dominant theme of Ruth is this Hebrew word, chesed. Say chesed. And it means loving kindness. And what, what we're seeing in the book of Ruth is that it's God's loving kindness and the loving kindness of others that pour from his people to others that can ultimately win the day. What the key that we're seeing, that's like a little aside that I think is huge for us, is, is Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. And it says this, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. This is what she was like. God is moving there so I'm going there. God is moving there, so I am going there. What, what Naomi was doing was looking for the place of grace in her life. And at the end of the day, for those of you who have been brought from death to life and have the Holy Spirit in you, just as a teaching point, aside from even the sermon, do that every day. Be aware of where it is that God is at work in your life. Wherever, he is, wherever he's at, whatever he is doing, join him in that place. Don't do new things. Do what he's already up to. Last last bit of review. That's just a little bit of background. It's because you've got these two women who are on their way back to where Naomi's husband is from. This little village called Bethlehem. Um, and they, they've now entered into Israel. And in Israel, what what God had tried to do was to create a country that would actually look after people in the worst of circumstances. Like if you read the law... That is what God was trying to do. If the worst thing happens, you don't get spit out. And so this is, this is the last thing, and we'll, we'll dive into Ruth chapter 2. This is the, 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 a background text from Leviticus, talking about the law verse nine, in chapter 19. And this is what God says. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of, the, of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, for I am the Lord your God. So basically, the people who are the most vulnerable, the most in trouble, the most spit out by the system, even for them in the system that God has set up, there should be hope. For the worst of the worst of the worst, he has built it into the law of That if if my people who are called by name by name would actually do what it is that I have said, no one at the end of the day is going to get spit out. That's the way that it's been set up. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through Ruth chapter two. I'm going to I'm going to give some little nuggets as we go along, and then I'm going to hopefully like land the big idea of this text like a sledgehammer. Here we go. We all ready? That that gives me no confidence or belief. Are we ready? Yes. Ruth chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, what did we just read? We just read that there is a law that says, look, Don't harvest all the way to the edges, leave a little bit left, and don't go back a second time if something is dropped for this reason. So this essentially is what Ruth is saying. Let's see if I can find someone who will be kind enough to me who is actually obeying the law of the Lord. Will I find, this is what she's saying, will I find a single, solitary person who is actually doing what God says? As it turns out, even a single, solitary person who's doing what God says, can start a whole bloodline from which the whole of the world will be saved. Because this is the bloodline from where Jesus Christ comes from. Let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 3. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moad with Naomi. She said, please let me glean among, uh, excuse me, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now Except for a short rest in the shelter. So first off, like this I don't know if this necessarily adds anything. It's just a little detail about the story. Like the, the greeting that Boaz gives to the people, where he's like, the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. Like that's not the normal greeting. The normal ble- greeting is something like, Sup, Aisha. Well, I mean it's 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 just it's sort of bland, it's vanilla, how you doing? You don't really mean how you doing you're just that's how we say hello like what there's this something in the heart of boaz that like when he sees these people who are working for him who in some ways like he is he is providing the space for them to to earn a living for their family like his heart for them is like would the lord completely bless you and their response isn't like hey boss it's not a shrug of the shoulders. Like there, there's this like chorus of a response back. Like what you're seeing just in the way that he says hello and the way that they respond is like, this is a man that has like unbelievable character. And he has created this culture, this environment, this like this, this system of relationships where people actually want to be there. And you can tell that just from the way they say Hi just from the way that they say hi. But look how the supervisor explains what Ruth has done in that passage. Like all she did was like in a probably very meek way and a very polite way, she's, she's just asking, hey, um, so there's this law and it says that if there's a foreigner, I'm a foreigner, who is destitute that they can like pick up stuff. Is it cool if I pick up stuff? And all he's doing is recounting the conversation they had. That's basically Ruth holding up the scriptures and being like, so do y'all believe this? Like, seriously, like, do y'all believe? Because, like, it says pretty clearly there's a way to live. Is that going to happen? And turns out, like, she got a break. She got a break. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls, watch the fields, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. So being giving some very specific instruction, I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that have been filled. At this, she bowed down and her face was right on the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner. Boaz replied, I have told, I was been told about all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. This is so beautiful. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge? That stuff just does not roll off my tongue when I'm talking to. Stuff. Like under whose wings you have taken refuge? So let's, this is this is where we need to like pump the brakes a little. Here we have Boaz, and he is doing exactly what the Levitical law is telling him to do he is following it line by line by line. He's doing exactly what it says. And he is the opportunity to ask himself one question. And it goes like this. Why should I do more? Why should I do more? Like if the scriptures wanted me to do more, why don't they tell me to do more? This is what it says. All you have to do is like, don't don't harvest everything leave some at the edges and then don't go for seconds i've done all of that cool i'm done instead this is what he does he treats her exactly like someone from that country and then he doesn't treat her like a servant he actually treats her like a family member you you wouldn't necessarily catch it but at, at the end of this verse right here uh, where it says in verse 9, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. The cultural custom was this. If you are a foreigner, if you are a servant, if you are a slave, or if you are an employee, you fill the water and then you give it to someone else. The only way that a man would then take, who was an employee, would take the water and then give it to a woman was if she was a daughter of their employer. And what he is essentially saying in his response is like, I'm going to treat you like your family. Does the scripture say to do that? No. What if what the scriptures are trying to do isn't to give us a ceiling, but to give us a floor? Furthermore, he protects her and he insists that she not go to another farm because he is he is really aware. He's like, look, I'm, I am a man who does keep the law. And, and I have this buddy over here. I wouldn't call him a buddy so much as like, I happen to grow up with him. And I know what he does to women over there. And this other dude across the road, I've heard some stuff about, like, look, like this is straight out of like the Me Too movement. Like, this is the first, in history, this is the first workplace anti-sexual harassment policy. That's what this is. Like, look, don't go there, don't go there. I have told my men, they touch you, they die. Like, you're done. Like, don't go, this is the only safe place for you. What is he doing? He is creating an environment where she can thrive. That's what's happening here. But notice what he highlights. Gosh, it's so good. He's like, I've heard your story. She's like, like, why are you doing this? She's like, let me tell you why. I've heard your story. I heard what happened to you, and I heard how you refused to leave your mother-in-law, and you had better options on the table. Your your other daughter, the other daughter-in-law, she took that option. And quite frankly, again, probably the wiser decision. But you were like... You could have gone back to your parents and you didn't. You could have found, you're a young, young woman. You could have found another husband in the place where you're from with worshiping the gods that you know and the customs that you know. And you chose to go here with this mother-in-law who isn't your blood to worship gods that you don't know and to go to a land that you don't know to people who you don't know. Ruth, that tells me everything I need to know about your character. Why am I treating you like family? Because this is what family does. Let's keep going. Verse 14. At mealtime, so Ruth goes back, finishes the uh, another uh, round in the fields. Verse 14 comes back. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. So again, she, he's, he is uh, he has fulfilled all of his obligations. Now he is inviting her to the table of honor where they have the best food. Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks from her, from the bundles, and leave them for her to pick up and do not rebuke her. So Boaz gleaned on the field until the evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and, and mounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over when she'd had the meal, but she had a bunch of, a bunch of leftovers. Are you, are you starting to get a picture about who Boaz is? Like, it's one thing to take like a step past what the law says. And it's another thing to take another thing. But now he's like, all right, like, it's not just like that we're not going to harvest everything. You're now just going to like carelessly just throw stuff about. Like, make sure that she has enough of enough of enough of enough. He is completely piling on the kindness that he shows her. And then the last piece of the story, starting with verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man that I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Well, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative, and he is one of our kinsman redeemers. We're going to talk about that kinsman redeemer thing next week. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, You know, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So we're seeing like several months are passing from where we started in Ruth 2 until like the wheat harvest, the barley harvest is now over. I mean, like Naomi is a little beside herself. She's like, do people like this actually exist in the world? And she's like, honey, this, this man is a distant relative and he's good people. You need to stick with him. Suddenly... A broken family who is on the verge of starvation. On the verge of starvation. In a world that knows what to do with marginalized, broken women. This is a family now that has a future that's full of possibility and stability. Here's the problem. We are people who almost by nature ask the wrong questions. Almost by nature we ask the wrong questions. What if Boaz had said this, God, Leviticus tells me not to reap to the edges of the harvest. Can we please define the edges? Do you mean like five feet to the edge? Do you mean 20 feet to the edge? Do you mean 18 inches to the edge? Can we be more specific about what the edges are? You see, this is a story about why checklist justice just won't work. Because justice is ultimately not about just restoring like that which is unfair. God's justice at the end of the day is the full flourishing of a person, of families, of people, of all of creation. And there is not a checklist that can do that. This is what I think the big idea of Ruth 2 is. It's that biblical justice requires has said, loving kindness. And often, not always, and often it starts with the person right in front of you. It starts with the person right in front of you. Not every time, but often. The problem, not for all of us in this room, but for some of us in this room, is that there is no person right in front of you. That we've constructed lives in such a way that we rarely encounter people who are crying out for justice or who are so tired of crying out that they no longer have a voice. Who is right in front of you is the thing that actually starts the conversation. What Boaz is doing and what Ruth is doing, this is, this is, this is amazing is that they are obeying both the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. They are obeying the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The law was never meant to actually be the ceiling. It was meant to be the floor. Our response... To our brothers and sisters who have been marginalized, who have been put on the fringes, who have fallen on hard times, who have taken, been taken advantage of, who have been spit out of the system, isn't to figure out the least of what we can do. And that is in many ways the way that we think. What is the least amount that I can do so that I can check that box off? But here's the thing. like. The way that we're thinking about this story is that we're thinking that this is a story in chapter 2 that's primarily about justice as it relates to Boaz. But we cannot forget Ruth in the midst of this. Ruth had the opportunity to leave her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law had had everything taken from her, and the smart play for Ruth was to go back to her mom, go back to her dad, find a new husband. And she saw this woman who had enough faith to believe, I see God working over there, I'm joining him in that place, and is essentially like, if whatever you have, that's what I want. Like, Ruth is the marginalized. Ruth is the spit out. Ruth is the one on the fringes. And even for her, she was an active participant and what God was doing, and in the redemption of literally everything, because in Ruth, through her womb and her bloodline, comes Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, on whom, like, there is no point in having a Pentecost without Jesus coming, dying, and raising from the dead who is now, at this very moment, interceding for us. Ruth, in many ways, is the interceder in this story. She is the one who has a mother-in-law who has nothing, has no prospects, a vulnerable woman alone, with a world that knows what to do with vulnerable women and with women, and was like, I will not leave her alone. In the same way that Jesus Christ, when he looks at you, is like, I will not leave you alone. Our response to our brothers and sisters, even if we are that brother or sister, cannot be what is the least that we can do. Our response is to be Jesus to them. The reason the checklist justice, the reason checklist justice won't work is because there is no resurrection power in checklists. There is no resurrection power in checklists. In chapter two of this story, we see two people who represent Jesus. It's not just Boaz. And Boaz, you do have a man who is doing, quote unquote, all the right things, whose heart was to see people restored to human dignity, not just to get a gold star. In Jesus, we see someone who did all of the right things, who is tempted and tried in every single way, every single way that you are, except he was the only one who did so and did not sin. And in doing so, people still came after him. The people that came after, he was not looking to get a gold star from. He wasn't looking to say like, well, I did all the right things. He was looking to bring light to a night sky that was completely devoid of stars. And Ruth, you have a woman who could have who could have just like taken her needs and her desires and being like, yeah, you should go to Bethlehem. Good luck. I'm going to go with mom and uh, dad back here. But in fact, it was Naomi who begged her to do that. Naomi did not want her. She knew what waited on the other side. But Ruth just would not let her be destitute and alone in this cold and unforgiving world. And what we see, according to Philippians 2, is a Jesus who leaves the throne, who pours everything of himself out, who does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the very nature of a servant. The good news is that Jesus doesn't give us what we deserve. He gave us immeasurably more than we could have hoped or dreamed or imagined. Jesus' justice, this is incredibly important. Jesus's justice is always marked by his loving kindness. His said And in Ruth and Boaz, we see that said breathed into life. That loving kindness. Justice. Devoid of loving kindness is devoid of Jesus. Justice devoid of loving kindness is devoid of Jesus. We have a definition that we use from time to time in our our community for what love is, and it's this. This love is fighting for the highest possible good for someone else, regardless of what it might cost you. Love is fighting for the highest possible good of someone else, regardless of what it might cost you. The justice of Jesus is always marked by and motivated by love. It's always marked by and always motivated by love. Brothers and sisters, There is uh, there, there are all sorts of opportunities in the world that we live in um, to... to to give a kind of justice that is devoid of Jesus. And all too often we are a community that does that. That is looking to give a version of justice that is not the kind of justice that Jesus had in mind. Any justice that is devoid of the love of Jesus is devoid of Jesus. And if you think That I I might be off my rocker about this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It sounds a lot like Boaz and Ruth. Sounds more importantly, a lot like Jesus. A lot like Jesus. This is what we have to offer people. It's not. It's not a. It's not a Jesus that is devoid of justice. But it is also not a justice that is devoid of Jesus. What, what we are attempting to do is to bring the whole gospel to the whole neighborhood through the power of the Holy Spirit. The things that we just read about, love is patient, love is kind, it keeps no record of wrongs. At 6.03 in the morning, I'm already done. If that's the checklist. But let's remember what today is. It's Pentecost Sunday. It's Pentecost Sunday. Without any Holy Spirit, there is no power. I don't have the power to live that kind of loving existence. I don't have the power to offer justice in the way that Jesus offers it, but only with the Holy Spirit is there a prayer, a whisper of a chance that God could do something extraordinary. We're going to come to the table today to celebrate communion, to celebrate a gospel feast. I want to invite the band to come up we spend a lot of time today, uh, and hopefully we do every Sunday talking about Jesus. Um, as we as we approach the tables, Jesus gives um, or Paul gives some very specific instructions about what it is that we do when we come to the, the table to celebrate communion. And he says, every time that we come to the table, we, we're actually to pause and we're to do an examination of our life. Like, am I living out of a place that is what's the least that I have to do? Or, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what do I get to be part of? Am I looking to live in a world of checklists? Or am I looking to live in a world that is flourishing and being redeemed more and more every single day by the power of the Holy Spirit? The only way that this happens is because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread... And he says, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. And he breaks it. And then he takes the cup and he pours it. And he says, this is the wine of the new covenant. This represents my blood, which is being spilled for you. And he says, when you gather, and as many times as you do that you would actually celebrate this feast together, that you would remember who it is that I am, but also who it is that I've made you to be. So I'm going to ask our communion servers to come up. So this is a table for those who want to meet Jesus, Uh, whether this is the first time that you are meeting him or the millionth time that you're meeting him. It does not get old. Um, Being with Jesus is one of the greatest joys and the gifts that we have. Uh, And this is a very specific way that he he has called us to meet with him as a body. I would encourage you as you as you come to this table to take a moment to pause and to reflect on what it is the Lord might be saying to you. Um, so that you can enjoy the fullness of what it is that this meal offers. And that as we leave today at the close of our service and, and go into our lives Monday through Saturday, that we remember that we live in the power of what this meal has accomplished for us.
2: at his voice and trembles at his beginning and the end Yeah. please stand for our final song. This song says, You've Been So Faithful. This is the story of Ruth. Literally, as you look back over your life, you may not feel it in a moment, but when you look back, you see God's faithfulness over and over again. As I look As I look back over my life Hey! I can see How your love is guiding me, even though I've done wrong, you never left me alone, but you forgave me, and you kept on blessing, this I recall to my heart, therefore I have hope, it's because of your mercy that we are not consumed, because thy compassions fail not, they are new every morning, is that faithfulness Grace, is that faithfulness Great is that yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. Listen up one more time As I look As I look back over my life hey. I can see you I can see how your love has gotten me Even though I'm done wrong, you never kept on blessing this I recall to my mind therefore I have hope it's because of your mercy that we are not consumed you've done for me, how you lose my shackles and you set me free. How you made a way out of no way, turn my darkness into day. You've been my joy in the time of sorrow, hope oh, for my tomorrow, peace in the time of storm, strength when I'm weak and one. I can never repay you, love, for what you've done for me. How you lose my shackles and you set me free. How you made a way out of no way, turn my darkness into day. In the time of sorrow Hope for my tomorrow Peace in the time of storm Change my little weak and white You've been hey. Lord, you've been so faithful hey. Sing, you've been You've been Lord, Lord, you've been so faithful I can never I can never repay you, Lord, for what you've done for me. How you lose my shackles and you set me free. How you made a way out of no way, Turned my darkness into day. In my joy in the time of sorrow. Oh, for my tomorrow. Peace in the time of storm. strength when I'm weak in war. I can never repay you, Lord, for what you've done for me. How you lose my shackles and you set me free. i exactly.
1: let's close from this passage but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus yes, christ
2: again yes. and again. therefore
1: my dear brothers and sisters stand firm let nothing move you always give yourselves fully to the work of the lord because you know that your labor in the lord is not in vain we have a meal that's going to be starting up i believe
2: paul granger is going to be giving us some instru-